Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of When Organic Makes the Grade. However, I'm actually going to start with a seemingly unrelated subject, and that has to do with aid, and particularly aid in Africa. As I was born and raised in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, but actually back when it was called Zaire. So that's what I'm familiar with. And I wanted to give you a kind of picture of of, of the country, because I think most people have no concept of of how uh, places can be so different than they are here. So one of the poorest countries, if not the poorest country in the world, we're talking a, a GDP per capita somewhere around $400. So that's that's making an average person makes $400 a year. Um, it's had a long, long history of, of a, you know, abuse by colonialists and then more present history, you know, after the genocide in, in Rwanda, um, where the Hutus were massacring the Tutsis, the, the conflict got pushed into, into Northern, um, Northern Congo there. And eventually the conflict just got more and more complicated till basically, um, the Africa's own world war was fought there. And uh, so just to give you very briefly an idea, I mean, over 10 million people, uh, probably double like what the Holocaust was. People have died in the last 10 years or so. Um, displaced people far, far out numbers, uh, like the amount in Syria. So, so you get the idea. It's a, it's a place of, of just a crisis right i mean and all the systems have have come come kind of come to a halt right a total failed state um as for the individual i mean those those people are amazingly resilient and uh, we're talking people that can come up and make a a silk purse out of a sow's ear as they say you know five times a day just to they drum up uh, you know, enough money or enough commerce or something just to get some food for the day. So at that level, they're amazingly resilient and amazingly um, uh, creative. And, you know, they figure out um, how to come up with, you know, something out of nothing. But the the, the systems above that, you know, the more, um, like, for instance, even back 20, 20, 30 years ago when I was there, the you know, they were the roads were basically left over from the colonialists. The infrastructure for water and for um, and for electricity, same thing. You know, we I lived, I grew up in a sort of an overgrown village city. But part of it had some of the municipality still intact, um, but we would get electricity and the water would come on at the same time maybe once a month for a few hours if we were lucky. So you get an idea that, you know, the the systems <clears throat> really had, had ground to a halt. And, you know, many of the roads and the highways were have just, you know, basically devolved into uh, just a mud track, you know, that uh, you certainly couldn't travel between cities without four, a serious four-wheel drive. So, you know, in this context... Um, you know, you you have you have these crises, and then you have um, you know, oftentimes you have famine, and and at times these these situations they reach the Western media, and you get enough people, you know, to to notice, and you know, there's been times when you whether it was uh, 
Zimbabwe or Ethiopia was a big one, right? And then you you get some people, maybe some celebrities, and you get some, you know, some musicians, famous musicians, and they want to do something. Then they have a concert, right? They get together, they sing, we are the world, you know, they raise millions of dollars of money and they decide we're going to go in there, we're going to help these people, so they might and maybe this is a place you know where the infrastructure has fallen apart the roads are hard to get into so you got to maybe airlift the food in there you know and it's crazy expensive and uh, but say let's they 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 get together and they do all the logistics and they airdrop, you know, all this rice and all this maybe powdered milk and cans of this and whatnot. And maybe they, you know, they maybe they even do a good job of setting up sort of a, a UN distribution and, you know, and may, they drop maybe enough food for let's say five months for 20,000 people in this area that's really hurting you know and you you accomplish that and you set up a system of distribution and you know even in even the best case scenario here you know and people are actually going to get divvied out um you know a little bit of food for for the full five months you know and then you pat yourself on the back and you go home and you say hey we did a great job but the reality is a lot um, just a lot darker, right? So most of the times this may have been caused by a drought or something, right? So you didn't have rain. And by the time the news has gotten out, by the time you've done your concert, by the time you've gotten all your logistics done and actually, you know, airdropped all this food, well, the rains very likely have come back, right? And so the farmers in that area probably have already planted seed and their, their food's all you know, getting together. Maybe they even started selling a little bit of food to people but obviously it wasn't enough there's still a crisis right and then suddenly you have airdropped uh, enough food for you know five months for 20,000 people or whatever it is and uh, imagine what that happens to the farmer right so those farmers that had just getting ready to sell their stuff at a very tiny tiny price even if they're just charging 25 cents for something you know if you can go get your your daily allocated amount of rice from the UN distribution point, you're not going to buy it from the farmer, even if it is a very reasonable price. So you've basically essentially flooded that whole market and um, the systems and the structures, infrastructures that were there are completely imploded, right? Another example of this would be, um, well, I have family still in the DRC and um, trying to, they're part of this organization that's trying to reconstruct some of the healthcare system that used to be there, right? And this is a very, very difficult thing to do because aid is very hard to do without causing harm. And and so maybe they try, they find a, a place where there used to be a hospital or a clinic and there's a building there and they said, well, okay, maybe we can help um, fix this building up again, patch, you know, leaks in the roof, whatnot. And then it's this whole sort of infrastructure you have to build up to it. Say, oh, this is a good location, right? But then maybe we need to have a, an agricultural project, you know, related to it so it can make a little bit of money on the side as well as maybe you know, feed the people that are coming to the hospital because it's not like here where, you know, you go to the hospital and then you need to, you're away from your home. Uh, you can just go down the street and get something from fast food or something. Or, you know, these are, 
we're talking about mud huts, dirt roads, people travel, maybe they've walked or bicycled for 10 miles, 20 miles, you know, they get to the hospital, you know, who's going to feed them, you know, so you have to think about that area, you have to then you, you have to think about, you know, you're going to have to staff these hospitals with, you know, nurses and doctors and Maybe you even have a educational, you know, medical school kind of thing. Um, but you, you know, you're going to hire these, uh, you're going to hire the staff and, you know, and you have to figure out what's an appropriate amount of pay for these guys. So maybe you pay these guys, let's say $5 a day. Really don't know, but that would be a fantastic job, right? If you take into consideration that most, you know, the average person making $400 a day, well, $5 a day, that's, that's maybe that's an appropriate amount to pay someone. And then it would be worth for them to, you know, to take the years of education to go through medical school and then help out, you know, maybe you have to work on infrastructure of roads. Maybe you have to figure out, you know, how to get some water and the, you know, um, all sorts of issues. This, you, you're building this whole sort of ecosystem of infrastructure and systems that have to all kind of interrelate to interrelate to each other and be able to grow you know and and slowly begin to fill those needs but in an appropriate way um you know you might you you would definitely the hospital would have to charge something for the you know for the if you go see the doctor or for surgery whatever but it might have to be really subsidized you know so it may be for you know a procedure you have to pay one or two dollars you know whatever people can afford but there has to be some sort of economy that begins to be developed there well same kind of thing will happen uh maybe there's a crisis in an area again and suddenly you realize that all these people are maybe they've they're catching tuberculosis or what now people don't get attention for that. Maybe it was cholera or something or polio. And, you know, you, something big catches the attention again or the Western media. Suddenly there's an NGO that says, we got to go in there and do something. You know, these people are really want to help. They're motivated. They get their NGO. They raise their millions and millions of dollars. They go into this area and they set up, you know, here we are. We're going to come here and we're going to, got this epidemic and this crisis going we're gonna set up a quick clinic here and then we're gonna give our aid for free right so they go and they maybe they're there for five months again they see 20,000 people whatever the number is it's a huge number right and they come in there and they they want to hire local people to, you know, maybe to be chauffeurs or maybe to be whatever and they're, they're paying people you know to them these people are you know, have been making maybe six-figure salaries all their lives, you know, and here they're going to hire someone. They want to, you know, they want to help out the local people. So maybe they pay them a hundred dollars a day, right? Even the staff at the, at the other clinics, right? They going to say, Hey, you know, come on over. We need more people to help us out. We're going to, you know, we're going to support the local people. So they say, Hey, you come over here. We'll pay you a hundred dollars a day, right? Well, anyone who was making $5 a day at this other clinic is going to go over and help out for four or five months to, to do, you know, at $100 a day, right? And and then they're going to give free aid to everybody. So there's nobody's going to go to the old clinic, even if it's a dollar for the procedure and if they can get whatever they need to get for free from this NGO. So I'm kind of throwing out figures and who knows how exact or right they are, but you get the idea that, um, you know, they come in with these millions and millions of dollars. They implode the economy there. So they, they put these inputs in there and they just, you know, they're just so inappropriate of scale towards, you know, what the people make there. So then, 
you know, you're going to feel great and you're going to help all these people out and maybe you gave free care to tens of thousands of people for several months and you, maybe you got the cholera um, or polio uh, epidemic under control and, you know, but you have just poured millions and millions of dollars into this area that was, you know, people were making uh, $400 a year, right? I mean, there's the, the issue of scale. And this is... Um, this is going to implode uh, an economy that's that's really suffering. But any any inappropriate scale would actually implode any economy, no matter how robust it is. It's just a matter of scale. So just to give you an idea, right? I mean, just to do the thought experiment. Imagine you know some aliens come from from Neptune and they they come down and let's. Let's go to, you know, somewhere in California or, or New York City, right? Someplace where, you know, financial, robust economy. But but let's say these guys come in and they're, uh, these aliens, they want to, maybe, maybe they're even benevolent and they want to help out. And say they were giving, you know, every day they were giving people $10 million. Right, you just show up and you help them uh, collect soil samples that they want to go study and take back to Neptune, whatever. I who knows what they're doing, but right, and they're dropping ten million dollars to anybody who's helping them, whatever. Right, everybody and their cousin and their cousin's girlfriend and boyfriend are going to travel as fast as they can to New York, and they want to get you know in because every day they're there, they're going to make ten million dollars, right? And not only is this going to cause all sorts of chaos but it's also every all the systems there were there in that local economy they you know because of that implosion they're just gonna come to a grinding halt because suddenly 10 million dollars every day in the economy you've just think the thought experiment can go quite far but i think you get the idea so Aid has always been a very, very difficult thing. And in most cases, we actually do quite a bit more harm in the long term. We might help in the short term, but in the long term, um, we've never really, uh, we're actually quite, it's usually quite detrimental to the long-term systems that be. And to help is actually really tough and, and to, to give appropriate aid and to, to know it takes um it takes very fine-tuned, um, well, cultural, um, you know, you got to have people who know the culture there, who have, you know, a lot of relationships with the people there and and to build things appropriately with, you know, if you're going to try to put some extra inputs into that kind of economy and to, to grow it up appropriately so things don't implode or explode, um, it's very difficult. Um, but and, and what does this have to do with with vegetable growing <laughs> well this has to do with the second challenge in that um there's kind of you know it's it's the difference between an open system and a closed system right and and i'm using those terms quite loosely but when you have a a rotationally grazed pasture it's somewhat of a of a close uh, of a closed system. Of course, you've got the constant uh, sunlight coming in and photosynthesis going on, and the and the pasture and their perennial and the permaculture crop is is gathering that. But then you you put your ruminants on top, um, and the ruminants are eating the grass. But of course, they have that feedback loop of um, 
their manure and their urine going back into the soil and helping the plants. And, and there's this closed feedback loop. And so, of course, there needs to be a third component, whether it's a predator on top of that, that is keeping the population in check and keeping them moving or whatnot. Or in our case, it's the farmer, right? And so you, you keep the system with enough feedback loops intact. There's an extremely, um, an extreme amount of abundance that you take off the top of that in order to keep those systems healthy. So that's a relatively closed system. So more of an open system, that's where like vegetables and grain fall in, right? So you um, say you're growing your tomatoes, your beans, your cucumbers, all that, right? You you gave your two bushels and your three bushels or whatever of tomatoes and, and okra or whatever, and you you give that to your customers. Well, all that nutrition that you've, you know, it's really does go to the fruit, the vast, you know, the majority of the nutrition that you've, you've gotten from the soil is going into the fruit. And then you give it and you sell it to your customers and your humans. And of course, you know, in, in terms of relating back to my fourth podcast, humans are a dead end nutritionally, right? Um, their feedback loop is not involved there. So the manure is not going to go back and help the plants, right? And so if, you, if you've taken all these tomatoes or all these beans or whatever, even if you took all the stems, you took all the leaves and you uh, maybe um, worked them back into the soil, there's just not going to be um, enough nutrients to replenish what, what was taken up and taken out and, and sold off to, to the customers. So that sort of open system that doesn't have the feedback loop of fertility um, is going to require inputs. And this is how it's related to aid because inputs can be done uh, well or they can cause a lot of damage, much like aid. And so um, probably, you know, what would, would happen, you know, we used to, you, you want to either start a garden or even if you want to start a big farm, right? But we used to take the arable land and you take your lawn or in the case you take pasture um, and you whatever scale it is right you you plow up that that grass and the pasture whether it's um a quarter acre or you know or a thousand acres right you, you take that perennial pasture and you plow it up and then you start planting all these all these plants whether it's grain or vegetables right and it might go great for a year or two you know but then you're going to quickly see that you know okay now we're struggling with pest issues or we're struggling with you know some diseases or we're struggling with and a lot of times that has to do with just lack of nutrition that the plant's able to it's just not quite as resilient so the typical uh, paradigm of, of doing this is again is to test right so you get your extension agent and they test and you look for deficiencies and then you supplement right so let's say you got the test back and boy you're pretty low in potash and you're you know and you might need some magnesium or whatever but hey let's get let's get this into there and the classic thing is to get some chemical fertilizer right you know all the um you know, the most common is like 10, 10, 10. And, you know, you very likely are going to be, well, here you, you need some potash and maybe phosphorus, but, you know, hey, there's no problem. Give it also some extra nitrogen. Your plant's going to love it. And so you you you, you give your fertilizer, whatever it is, right? And your, your plants are going to respond to that because these have been made in the lab in a way that's very accessible for the plants. And uh, they green up and they fruit up and they give this great crop. And you're like, dang, this is awesome. This is great. This is the way to go, 
right? But you've basically done the same thing of at a point of crisis, you've come in and you've imploded the economy, but you've you've taken care of a whole lot of plants and a whole, you know, just like the people came in and they fed the 20,000 people for five months, you know, or they were able to give free health care, right? But all the little local, you know, I, I've been spent a lot of time trying to talk about the soil and the ecological and all these little different economies going on and all these little systems interacting with each other. Well, these huge, you know, powerful, strong chemical fertilizers are basically the alien coming in and giving $10 million a day to everyone they see, right? And it implodes the economies of the soil. So and and they've done studies, um, particularly with phosphorus, and this is relates back to what I was talking about with Michael Rizzoil. And uh, remember that one of the things of sequestering carbon is that <clears throat> they're trading nutrients for the carbon, and in particular, phosphorus is one of those ones that they that the plant is able to get from the fungus, and then trades the carbon for it. Well, if there's all this free phosphorus or free whatever just sitting around the soil, and it's really accessible for the plant, they don't make the symbiotic relationships with the mycorrhizal. And so that plant may have the the nutrients it needs for that season, or even, you know, whatever, however long, but that's going to be just short term and it's guaranteeing this sort of dependence on these chemical fertilizers just like aid most of the time what it's doing is really good at creating dependence and not helping people become um, self-sustaining or you know get their own feet under them and the same thing happens with the plants so I would say that, you know, my podcast, last podcast talked about uh, erosion and tilling the soil and losing our soil. You know, there's one thing, lose your physical soil. That has got to be, you know, number one on the list of, of, of things that will destroy our eco ecology, right? If you lose your soil, you don't even have anything to work with. But very likely this close second would be the chemical fertilizers coming in because your soil may still be there. But you've basically imploded all the the local systems and the local you know ec ecological systems underneath. They just they end up grinding to a halt, and so then you become dependent on these you know basically oil based chemicals in order to keep your plants going, and they become less and less all you know nutritionally um, dense simply because. You can't, you know, you're basically giving your micro macronutrients here, you know, if, you know, for people, if we have fat and we have fat and protein and carbohydrates for plants, you, you know, as a very loose parallel, you know, you have your nitrogen, phosphorus and, and potash, right? And, but we all know that nutrition is so much more involved than, um, than just the macronutrients. So chemical fertilizers as inputs are extraordinarily um, destructive in the long term, even if they give you a really good crop at first. So what are some alternatives? Well, um, I have some good friends next door and um, they will have the, you know, the, it's got two operations on their farm. One runs a CSA, but the other part of it is um, they have a warehouse for organic supplements. Um, some of it's for animals too, but most of it's for organic vegetable growing. And um, I have seen uh, pallets and pallets of the stuff called Harmony that um, people come and it's a, it's a, 
certified organic uh, fertilizer and it's from chicken manure right and so it's a it's a source that's not from the lab right it's not chemical in that sense it's it's from a, a, a biological animal so it's organic in that sense um but the reality is that um while it does a lot it does great things for the soil and whatnot but these are coming from from the cafos right the confinement animal feeding operations right these come for those warehouses with the tens and tens of thousands of chickens in them and you know if you're in that system and you've got you know fifty thousand chickens in a warehouse and they're all poop and you got to do something with all that manure right and so this you know from that perspective is a great way to take that manure and uh well i think you gotta you gotta collect it you gotta ship it off to some sort of place that's gonna um, process it. I imagine, I guess I should know this better, but I imagine they heat it up or do some sort of something to make sure that it's it's safe and it doesn't have any more chemicals in it, whatever. Then they dry it and then they package it in like 50 pound bags and then they ship it off to a distribution center and then that gets spread out to everywhere and then eventually it gets to these organic farms. So, uh, while it's a great way to um, mitigate the waste from these big chicken warehouses, um, it's very heavily uh, oil dependent one on, on the transportation and the processing and whatnot. And um, so, you know, and it's, it's, it's a little bit of a mitigation. It's a step in the right direction. But uh, there's some irony there that um, so it's an organically certified um product to to fertilize all these organic farms but it actually only 25 percent of it um comes or is required to come from even warehouses that feed organic food so we're talking we're really very connected um the harmony and that kind of stuff is very connected to the industrial factory farming and um even the parts of it that um, are organic or are feeding organic in these big warehouses, you know, only 25% of the harmony is required to have that. So while it's a step in the right direction, it's not quite as much of an implosion as the chemical would be, you know, you're still very much tied into the factory um, farm, uh, whole system and everything. And so, um, uh, what, what would be some other alternatives? I have another, I have some other friends that, um, they run a big organic, um, vegetable farm and, uh, they were very savvy in that when they set up their operation, they located just outside of, um, just kind of on the outskirts of the town and they have this set up and I'm not sure exactly the details, but they have to set up with the municipalities that they get truckloads of the leaves that are collected and they also get a certain percentage of, uh, like wood chips and whatnot from trees and you go to their farm and, um, you, you literally, you've got uh, hills like they've, you, they've come in by the dump truckloads and, and you see these, um, uh, the wood chips and these these mountains of wood chips and this is a fantastic um, source of inputs. You know, you know that uh, they probably have half a dozen ways to work these back into the soil. Whether it's whether it's compost or, or mulch or you know who knows. I know know all the different ways you would get that back in the soil, but um, this is a massive amounts of. Of, of inputs readily available uh, in order to eventually work their way into the soil. 
hopefully even sequestering carbon because a lot of this is carbon-based and uh, making their soils, soils better as they go. Um, a fantastic model, obviously not one that everyone can do, but you know these are the kind of things you really need to think about when you're going to arrange vegetables is how do you have a, a sustainable source of inputs that are, you know, uh, not harmful, like chemicals and organic and, you know, uh, fundamentally, you know, good, clean and organic sourced um, input. So I, however, um, I would go even a step further, you know, and, and uh, this, the same farm here that does inputs, they have some animals, but I think that to really, truly be regenerative, I think animals need to be part of the picture. And um, I do know of some people who are even raising grain that they'll have, you know, a field of grain and then they may plant their cover crop. Um, and instead of, you know, getting out there and turning that cover crop back into the soil, they're going to send their ruminants over and uh, that the ruminants are going to eat that cover crop. And so that accomplishes both things, the part one and part two of you've got the animals going in there and and they're doing exactly what Roundup would do, right? They're going to eat all the foliage, you know, and if you can get some even sheep there, they can even get further down and eat all the way down. You're going to clean up that whole area. And um, instead of using chemicals to, to poison all the foliage, basically you've done that through animals. And at the same time as they're going through there, they're giving inputs, right? Because it's going to go right through their system and they're going to drop their manure and they're going to drop their urine back into the, the soil there. So I, I think that... To truly get to to a regenerative place, um, these systems, I think that more and more vegetable farms and uh, grain farmers are going to have to incorporate <clears throat> some sort of rotational grazing into their system so that you can get more feedback loops involved there so that your soil would actually, over the long term, keep um, systems, systems going and fertility growing there. So I wanted to also move on and address one more thing. I finally feel like I'm I've now have the context where I can address um, the non-ruminants on our farm. So um, we have people who who criticize our non-ruminants, um, and the very that's fair criticism is things you have to think about. And uh, one of the things that people say, you know, we, we rotate our hogs and they get a good percentage of, of their, of their intake is going to be pasture, you know, but that realistically we're talking quarter to maybe some people argue can go up to a third of their intake being pasture. I'm not quite sure it's that high. Um, and I, it'd be very hard to know exactly uh, how much, but, um, Right, you still have that. Let's say you still have the other three quarters that's of, of inputs, and that's grain. You know, and there is a very valid criticism that um, you know when you have these these grain dependent um, breeds and in animals that are out in the field that you know that's that's an input, and it's um, it can be costly to the environment when you know enough about how grain is grown and whatnot. And so this is something that we definitely have thought about and we are actually working on on sourcing our grain uh, more and more sustainable and more, more local sources and um, hopefully to get a, com a podcast later on that. But um, suddenly 
um, I, I get, I get, I definitely get that criticism of inputs. <clears throat> what I and I would argue that um, yes, I'm trying to source my inputs really well, and I'm putting them through a system where actually then it goes through the hog, and then the manure and the urine falls back onto the. <clears throat> onto the the pasture and that's a very appropriate uh it's a great feedback loop and it's a very appropriate input for for the economies and the local systems of the soil right there <clears throat> so part of it is is um i get the criticisms but i feel like oftentimes i get them from vegetable growers and for me that's kind of an irony because i feel like their systems always require inputs and then um, we get the criticism that our animals are requiring some inputs. And so I, it, suddenly if we can, we can see that <clears throat> most of the time we're getting inputs, um, whether you're a vegetable or if you're a hog farmer or whatnot, and it's just when are these inputs appropriate? What kind of inputs are there? And what kind of feedback loops and how are we getting these inputs to basically interrelate with the, the soil and the ecosystems that are around there? And the second um, criticism comes, and this would lead me to my arboreal. So we raised the Cornish cross, and they're a hybrid, and they're a really uh, production model bird. And um, we've um, <clears throat> spent years um, getting better and better at of having them be able to to be rotationally grazed. Um, we'll call it grazing. Again, same thing. We're hoping to get maybe a quarter of their intake to be pasture, right? But we move these guys every day. Um, and we, right, they have the inputs, right? But another, um, another criticism on top of that is that they are, uh, they're they're very large, right? So these birds, we can we can we're not quite at the can't do it quite as fast as when they do them in the industries inside the warehouses. But in seven weeks, we can get a four and a half, an averaging about four and a half pound carcass of these birds. It's amazing; they grow incredibly fast. So we really feel like we've we found a good, in a sense, compromise, right? So we're we need to make some money, and if you go with any of the heritage breeds, it's going to take forever to grow them out. And even if you go with some of the other hybrids that are not quite as uh, production-oriented, you know, the K-22s or the Freedom Rangers, these are breeds of, of chickens that are a little less fast, and they're hoping them they can forage a little more. Well, these still take uh, not, not quite twice as long, but maybe one and a half times as long, and we just can't get as many rounds in. But we have we're getting enough grass in them that their nutrition is changing their taste is changing and they're tasting just as good as any of these freedom rangers going and that has a lot to do with how much work we do in order to get them fresh grass and whatnot but the criticism remains that here they are they're they're a bird that grows 10 times faster than their you know their original wild counterparts and you know they're still going about two to three times faster than the regular heritage breeds that we had and that's you know when you're talking about genetics there are some valid criticism there that if we've got you know like 95 percent of the chickens raised for meat or now this one kind of genetic if something were to go through them that's you know again that's not a diversity um it's not a diversity of genetics to be resilient there and i get it um in this case i have to compromise some because i have to make some money i have to make enough money to keep going here um but i i and I get that criticism, but again, as you know, as my wife, as my wife Sarah will say, uh, you know, people say, 
you know, I can't believe this is a bird. It, it's huge. It's 10, you know, it's five times the heritage breed size or three times or whatever it is, you know, and she'll say, well, that's true. But when have you ever eaten a vegetable that wasn't 10 times, 20 times the size of its wild counterpart? Right. So same, you know, we don't ever get these kinds of critical thought and processes, not ever, but rarely against, against the vegetables. Right. But I want a carrot that's actually big enough for me to, to, to eat. I mean, if you go to Queen Anne's Lace and pull up the root there, that's the wild carrot. It's sure tastes vaguely like carrot, but you're basically eating these like fiber sticks right i'm very happy for uh, a big fat carrot bigger than you know my fingers and chomp into them and whatnot and so <clears throat> again you know I, I get these criticisms and but i feel like if if we can keep them on in the context of the ecosystems of our soils and the ecology of what's going on we're able to use these inputs very very positively so uh I think I talked about a field that we had gotten um, and it had had horse pasture for, you know, had been continuously grazed by horses for a long time. This was an, uh, a pasture that had like was coming, you know, the, all the systems were just coming to a halt. Right. And there was even like bare parts of the earth and they were, and they were starting to spread some. And I, even when we first got it, got the horses off, boom. And then I just thought I'd let it grow for a bit and just hardly anything grow grew the the systems are just kind of ground to a halt well if you're going to stick ruminants through there you I mean you would hardly get enough it has to be a certain amount of biomass that you can get to the ruminants to make it worth it for them to be on there and that just wasn't wasn't really feasible for those kind of the numbers that we had so I felt like I couldn't even get my sheep on there. So what I did was I put chickens and ducks and I rotated them and I was putting inputs through them. So not only there was enough grass, it was short enough, it was a good size and short enough for, for the, the poultry there to be able to eat, you know, uh, like a good bit taller for the sheep. But for the poultry, it was a good size. I'm giving the inputs of the grain, yes, that I brought in from outside the farm, but those were going into my soil. And so I was starting to condition this, this pasture. So I sent the poultry through a couple times, and then suddenly there was enough inputs there for the grass to start growing again. And there's nothing that'll green up your pasture like sending broilers through and they just dump a whole load of manure. And you just keep that moving on down and and, and you just have this swath of green that follows behind them. Well, once I was able to do that and I was able to get enough biomass, then I could run in and I could bring in my ruminants behind them. Um, and a lot of times, tip, typically people are thinking, send your ruminants and then send your chickens in. But I just did this opposite way and because of the amount of inputs that my poultry were allowed to be putting into the soil, growing enough grass, get enough biomass there, and then suddenly you're putting the, the ruminants behind. And then we've been conditioning that field to the point where that, that field may very well be the most fertile. Like in five, six years, we've taken it from just about ground to a halt to extremely fertile, giving an, an unbelievable amount of, of biomass. So again, that scale that has to do with um, appropriate amount of inputs, appropriate kind of inputs, and being able to do them in, in ways that are supporting the systems that exist there. So I, the same sort of principles that you would apply to helping, you know, poor people in a crisis in some places as poor and as um, a failed state like, like the Congo, 
same thing has to apply with our soils and there's you know every soil in every situation is going to be a little different but it's really we have to be very mindful of how we go in there and um deal with our inputs and, and deal with how we can support and grow these systems because for me it's all about making making all these systems better and making them for the long term as well all right i think i'm going to wrap it up with that thanks for listening we'll catch you later